You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. We're back from our West Coast swing, searching for interviews with iconic music industry pros. Now, one day in California, we ended up high in the Hollywood Hills for an interview with Anthony Resta. He's an award-winning sound engineer, a producer, a multi-talented musician, a songwriter, and a collector of vintage instruments. He has worked with just about every A-lister you can think of, including Duran Duran, Collective Soul, Blondie, Sarah Evans, even Sir Elton John. And wait until you hear that story. As we wound our way up some pretty hair-raising turns into Laurel Canyon, there he was... Anthony Resta, such a gentleman, standing there opening the gate so we could get into his amazing recording compound, which was once a hunting lodge. And it was built way back in the 1920s. Oh, and did I mention that Joni Mitchell is his neighbor? We both know Anthony, and we've worked with him as singers in the past, but JC could not wait to remind him about the day she met him years ago. I was at the North Chelmsford Post Office. Someone had given me the advice to poor man copyright my very first song that I ever wrote by mailing it to myself. And I was in line talking to the postman about what I was doing, telling him about the song that I had written, and you were standing behind me in line. And you turned around, you said, hello, I'm Anthony Resta. Are you from Chelmsford? And I said, yes, I am. And you said, well, if you ever need anyone to talk to in the music industry, and you handed me your business card, and we have been friends ever since. <laughs> that was in 2004. Oh, my Gosh. Here we are in and, Hollywood. And how did we end up here? <laughs> Please tell me. As you can see, this was kind of like a reunion for the three of us. And there was just so much for us to talk about. Anthony loves espresso. He's kind of addicted to it. And he served it to us in his studio, surrounded by vintage guitars. This was the perfect place to interview Anthony and for him to be able to settle into stories about the early years of his career. I got a briefcase and printed a business card and said, I'm a record producer in 1988. And I walked off my day job, which was a, I was a bartender. And I had grown that little Thompson twins tail because it was the late 80s. And it was like not allowed by their protocol or whatever for the Marriott. And they said, you need to shave that off now or leave. And I said, okay, I'm not shaving it off. I'm sorry. And I walked out. And, and that, that was, was the, the beginning. beginning of my career. <laughs> you know, let's just step back because I know that you come from Canada. And yep. my first question for you is, how old were you when you discovered a deep love of the music? Oh, very, very young. Because my mother was into jazz and she would literally spin vinyl jazz records like all day long. You know, it was everything like, you know, Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, Dave Brubeck, Lionel Hampton, Satchmo. I mean, it was just... That Everything. permeated my life for years. By osmosis, I really gravitated towards that music. So I started studying drums when I was seven or eight. And it came to me really quickly, like a whirlwind, probably because of listening to all that music. And then I found myself playing in headphones along to Joe Morello on Sounds of the Loop. It was almost came to me like a flood. For a while, I was a little bit like a circus freak. My teacher would bring in other parents to say, see, if your kid practices, look what he can do. How many instruments do you play? Well, I tell people I just bang on things. I come up with cool parts. I'm not virtuoso, but I play flute, guitar, bass, clarinet, piano, harmonica, percussion. Are you a formally trained musician? <laughs> I am formally trained, but over the years, you kind of unlearn everything you ever learned and learn how to apply it in the real world, which is totally different. 
So many people whom we've interviewed, I'm thinking of people like Steve Dorff, incredible pianist and lyricist, a songwriter. And he has synesthesia, which is where at about three years old, he started seeing the notes like in colors. And I'm wondering if you were so good at hearing things and being able to bang on things and make music, there must be something very deep inside you. Maybe you're wired a little bit differently, right? It could be. My daughter is 12, and when she plays violin, it's frighteningly good. She's the concertmaster of the L.A. Youth Symphony, and it goes all the way up to 18. I think it is something in the genes. you know. Well, the wife, apple doesn't wife, fall far from the tree. Well, my wife is very, very musical. She's a songwriter and an incredible lyricist and very literary, and you know, she's got you know, into writing. So, yeah, it's, it's a family thing. You know? So you grew up in Canada. Take us for a little walk through your house when you were growing up. What was yeah. life like for you? In Canada, I, I spent my summers on a farm in Saskatchewan, hoeing potatoes and cutting chickens' heads off, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. No, wait wait a second. You cannot say something like that on an interview and expect me not to follow up. Anthony Resta has actually cut the head off of a chicken. So don't mess with him in the studio. That's before I knew what Ozzy Osbourne was about, too. And then you ended up in Australia. Yeah, my dad was a geophysicist. His company sent him to Australia for two years. And I went to first and second grade there, and I had to wear little knickers and a straw hat and sing God Save the Queen every day. Um, but you didn't get any of the accent. I love an Australian accent oh, whenever cool. I can get they, one, right? The kids would all laugh at me because I would say basket, and they would say basket. So, oh, yes, the basket. I would read out loud, and everybody just chuckled. You know? <laughs> Talk <laughs> about the groups that really inspired you early on, your early musical influences. You talked about your mom yeah. and her love of jazz. Was that the foundation for you? It was in the beginning, but then we moved to New England in the eighth grade, and then I started hanging out with kids with long hair, and they were listening to like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones. And all that. And so that changed my whole perspective on music, you know, and I discovered prog rock, which was at the time my thing, because it was kind of like jazz and rock together. So it made sense. So, yes, Genesis, King Crimson, Frank Zappa, really sort of intense. So let's talk a little bit about your college experience, because I know that you are a graduate of Berkeley College of Music, as is Jay-Z's husband. And it's quite the place, isn't it? I love Berkeley, but I didn't graduate because I ended up going on the road to tour with a R&B group that was doing like Sam and Dave, like a horn review. Like we would travel and play like casinos and stuff. So, you and John Mayer, he yeah. never graduated either because he got a gig, Yeah, right? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I have many John Mayer stories. Um, I, you know, I worked with John when he was a kid hanging around the studio when I was working with Sean Mullins on his second album. And he was incredibly talented. And I actually introduced him to Lee Denae at Columbia Records. John was, you know, just a prodigy of sorts. And he went into her office and said, I'm not going to do pop music. I'm the next Stevie Ray Vaughan. And the next day she said to me, who's this kid? He said he's the next Stevie Ray Vaughan. And he's a very good guitarist, oh, yeah, isn't incredible, he? you know, and he's a super talented songwriter, you know. At the time, I was so busy. I was like too busy for, for John Mayer at that time. You know? it's like, yeah. <laughs> Wait, let, let's yeah. say that one more time. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony Resto was just a little too busy for John Mayer at that time. <laughs> let's go back to the mid-1990s. You recorded your first solo album under the name of Ajax Rayovac. Well, I started doing performance art. I just loved beat poetry, and I, I studied it, and I decided I would take my poetry and recite it over very bizarre soundscapes. I would actually get in front of a crowd like a TT's and and scream, you know, get out of my way, you break happy. The race to red is what it's all about. So I made a whole album of this weird, like, far out music. And you sold out. Yeah. 
We did more than one reprint of it. It, it kind of caught on with Duran fans after I started working with Duran Duran. Let's talk about that. But first, let's go to Bopnique okay. Music, because that's where I met you. It is also a leap of faith to open up your own studio. Now, you talked a little bit about being a bartender at the Marriott. They told you to chop off your Thompson Twins tail. <laughs> By the way, I had a tail once as well. I had very short hair, but I had yeah. a tail and I used to that sing cool. Sheena Easton songs, you know, in That's bars. I mean, perfect. come on. So take me back to that time. You decide that you're yeah. going to be an entrepreneur and open up your own studio. That happened in 94, but I, I between, you know, leaving the Marriott and that was working a at a studio in um, Cortland Studios in Hanson, Mass. And Bob St. John was a, an engineer there, and we became friends through working with Hirsch Gardner and some other people. And before I knew it, I was kind of working full-time with Bob and Paul Cervoni at Cortland. So that became my home away from home. I literally had a little apartment under the grand piano. I had a toaster oven and a, a clock, and I lived under a grand piano for a few years there. And I would go home on the weekends to visit my parents. So that was another whole long period where we were doing like 80s metal. It was just a really exciting time period. And then from that, we went into Duran. And then once I started working with Duran, then I said, okay, I, I think I need to make my own studio so I can just do this from wherever I want. You know? I can still remember walking into the studio. And for our listeners, I think it would be really cool for you to describe the fact that it was in an old mill. Oh, it was a wonderful building, I guess from the late 1800s, early 1900s in North Chelmsford. And, you know, it's got like 20 foot high brick and beam. When I first moved in there, there was only like an insurance place and a golf place or something. And they said, well, how many windows do you want? You know, because they, 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 they it was like it was 300,000 square feet of empty space, but it was beautiful space because I think digital equipment had refurbished it or something and then gone out of business. It was magical. There was almost nothing in there for the first, you know, five years that I worked there. My dad came in one day and there's this like Moog synthesizer, a guitar and an amp in the corner of this <laughs> giant room. He's like, geez, Tone, what do you need all this space for? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I don't know. But as you saw, you know, 10 years later, it was filled with all kinds of stuff. Well, as is the room that we are sitting in and your space here in the Hollywood Hills filled with vintage instruments from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. In fact, an artist of yours just walked in asking if he could borrow some of your bongo drums. <laughs> so you've just got all these instruments everywhere. What is it about them? Is it your love of the instruments or the fact that, well, let's bang on this and see how this sounds? I think it's all that. I got a bug. Some people like collect antique cars or whatever. And like for me, it was old guitars. That There's a smell to the cases and the, the way they sound. Those old guitars have so much mojo. What are the qualities of a great producer? Well, it's kind of like the director of a film. You kind of want to have a look at the bigger picture. You need to be able to zoom out and help this artist get a picture of where they've always wanted to go. Some people can do it from afar and not pick up an instrument and just have a great ear like Peter Collins, who lives in Nashville. And he taught me so much. And he's from that old school where they sit there to the side of the, the board. And they just know what's going to sell. And then, and then you have people that roll up their sleeves and get in there and, and contribute. So there's no rules. How much is being a successful producer related to being a great relationship person? Oh, wow. it, Such a yeah, great question. Thank you. You're in a service industry and being able to convince somebody that your ideas are their ideas, for instance. I mean, these are all things that are important. And know. building trust yeah. with an artist because they're kind of putting themselves in your hands, aren't they? It's scary for people because their songs are their babies. You want to be respectful 
earlier in my career, I hear stuff. Sometimes I'll be in the supermarket and I'll hear a song and I'll be, and I'll literally cringe because I'm like, boy, look at me. It's like, I was just like, Oh, more of me, more of me, more of me. You know, and it takes a while to get out of yourself and realize that it's not about you. It's, you know, it's not about your cool toys and all the weird sounds you make. It, it's about the artist. And I've learned over the years to step back. You have a collaboration with an engineer, and I can't pronounce his name correctly, so you say it for us. Kariati Suteja. How did you meet, and how did you connect within the creative process? Because it's almost like you guys complete each other's sentences. He's he's a huge part of the story. I mean, he's just a sonic guru and super musical and very even-tempered and just an amazing guy. I stole him from a studio in Boston. I used to go there with a van full of equipment, and I'd like dump it off, and I'd be there for two weeks working. And whenever Kariati was there everything just went like so smooth and I got way more work done and I'd run into a problem. It would be just gone. And I said, Hey, do you want to work at my studio? And he's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and that was it. And that was, that it. was like 97, I think. Yeah. So yeah, we've been working together ever since and he's just phenomenal and people love him. He's just, you know, he's a huge part like together as a team, we work in two different stations and, um, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a process we've developed over the years. I remember you in my session with Charlie Farron. We were singing this pretty complicated duet, lots of harmonies, and you had done the drums on yep. the record. And I can still remember you sitting on the floor with a big piece of paper, and I asked you what you were doing, and you said, I'm mapping the song. Tell us what that's all about. I do it different with different projects. I think with that song, I was picturing orchestra and all these things. I was just kind of like mapping out visually where it was going to go, you know, because it's, it's like storyboarding. I'm so mad at myself that I didn't ask for that because I would have framed it and put it on my wall. <laughs> it's I've a wonderful piece wanted to... of music. You should play it for people sometimes. Yes, indeed. I, I, I try to. <laughs> In fact, we did reach number 39 on the adult contemporary charts That's with amazing. that record. Back in 2002, the Boston Globe writer Steve Morse wrote an article about you, and it was called Hitting the Big Time in a Small Town. How did you make a name for yourself and get the superstars that you have worked with to come to you and to trust in you? You get a lucky break at some point in your career, and then it's like either you're going to hang with it or you're going to lose the moment. It's like you get that one chance in a lifetime. And for me, I think having Duran Duran hear my weird poetry stuff is how it it, it literally happened. Because Dale Bazio from Missing Persons, I was touring with her as a, as a drummer and we had written some songs and through her, you know, and I owe her forever for this, she got the cassette to, to Warren. And so we had one side were the, were the songs that we had worked on and the other side was my very weird, far out performance art music. They took a liking to the, the sound of my performance art music. And I had meticulous weeks into mixes with like old 70s stereo equipment. Like I got so lost in this, into the audio world. And and they said, well, your, your record sounds better than ours. And we spent like, you know, a half a million dollars on it. So we, we, we want to figure out what you're doing. <laughs> Is it almost like getting the door to open? And sure. then once that door gets opened, if you've got the goods and you got the talent, well, there's your shot. Yeah, I mean, it's like you get an opportunity and hopefully... People will gravitate towards and, and want to continue. At that point, I ended up getting management with, with uh, Littman Entertainment in Los Angeles and Kathy and I, and they took me under their belt for like a dozen years. And a lot of things happened. But I've been through all these different stages of my career because the record industry kind of went independent. And then it was like, now oh, what am I going to do? Like the big record budgets for you know the, were, were a thing of the past. And I had to reinvent myself as an independent producer working on much smaller budgets, but coming up with the same level of product. 
And that's that's was a big challenge, a big change. Let's talk a little bit about memorable moments in the studio with some of the superstars you've worked with. Talk to me about Duran Duran. So many stories. I mean, you know, I worked on close to 30 songs with those guys. Just endless fun times. I mean, I remember there was a song called Buried in the Sand on the Medazzaland record, uh, which is coming up on the 25th anniversary this year. A lot of times they gave me free reign to completely revamp things. And it was like getting that kind of freedom, it was almost unheard of. I mean, they were so gracious and they they liked, they liked what I did. So they said, so I said, okay, I'm going to, I call the production coordinator. I'm going to get a set of Yamaha custom recording series drums in here. And they're like, you're mixing though. Like you, you need drums while you're mixing. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and they so just let you just take let me, creative. Yeah. And they were coming off a number one hit with Ordinary World. So there was like, you know, no time, no budget constraints. And I had like an open book for all this incredible gear. And Bob St. John was working with me at that time as an incredible mix engineer. And together we, you know, we teamed up. So Simon invited me to this place where I got to hang out with him and Prince. You know, it was me, me and Prince and these two girls that we met there upstairs at Brown's. And it was... I'm talking about Lindrum chips with, with Prince. I mean, there's just endless crazy moments that almost seem like somebody else's life at this point. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like to be in the same room with somebody like Prince. It was amazing because I was a huge fan, first of all. Like, the Lindrum was my first piece of equipment that kind of set me on my path because all the drummers were being replaced by this machine. You know, it was on Love is a Battlefield and When Doves Cry. And it was like every song on the radio was a Lindrum. And I'm like, I'm a drummer. And I'm like, hmm, okay, I need a Lindrum. I'm not going to get replaced. <laughs> and I bought a Lindrum and I collected all the chips and everything. I started working in studios around Boston. And then I hooked up with some company that was paying me $50 a song to do like cover songs of like, you know, programmed on the Lindrum. I mean, it was like this, my whole world started on the Lindrum. So Prince and I started talking about the Lindrum. I mean, we got deep into it and like we were discussing all the different chips you know, we even remembered brand names. I'm like, do you remember 55 gallon drum hit with a sledgehammer by North Star? And he's like, oh my God, that was insane. And then Simon grabs me by the arm and he says, Anthony, you whore, no shop talk. And he grabs me and he drags me away. <laughs> but what I love about that story is that right away you were able to connect on common ground with somebody like Prince and yeah. have that conversation. It was amazing. I'll never forget it. Collective soul. Collective soul. Oh my God. I, I love those guys. I had done a record with Nuno Betancourt from Extreme. His first solo album uh, was called Schizophonic. A Massachusetts and, and, band and too, it, right? And it was a very like eclectic, cool, a lot of weird sounds and stuff. And anyway, Ed Rowland from Collective Soul was like his favorite album of that year. And he was working at Criteria on their album. And he met Bob St. John and was working with Bob on something. He says, you know this guy, Anthony Resta? He says, yeah, yeah. I, I, do you want to meet him? He says, sure. So one day Ed Rowland just calls me up. He says, hey, I love what you do. Would you like to try a song out and see if something clicks? And I said, oh, sure. That'd be great. So I was working at Longview Farm on Susie DeMarchi's album from Baby Animals. And he sent me a song to work on. And in my spare time, when I'm working on somebody else's album at four in the morning. I'm working on that. And I sent him the, the tracks and he called me the next day. And he goes, but this is incredible. It's it's it's. But he says I, I can't find one, <laughs> like beat one. <laughs> so I said I said oh okay sure let me let me tone it down a little bit, and we just clicked. So I moved all my stuff down to Criteria. I drove in a van like in twenty eight hours with a van full of equipment straight to Miami. Set up my stuff, and I started working in the room with them. And then we started working on arrangements and. I started adding, you know, Mellotrons and electronics, which they, they had never had in their songs, really, up till that was Dosage 97. And that album 
is kind of, there's some songs in there sound like Pink Floyd. They gave me free reign too. It was amazing. It was, when I hear a story like that though, and I hear you say you took all your equipment and you put it in a van and you drove for 28 hours until you got to Miami and you showed up and you did the gig and you used your creative process. It's not easy to make it, is it? No. <laughs> and you got to put that there's, kind of time in, there's right? No shortcuts, yeah. There are no shortcuts. Blondie. Blondie was through Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran. He had a song that he had written called Pop Trash Movie. It's a wonderful song. So we ended up at the Hit Factory with Blondie and Warren was there. We spent two weeks, I think, making these two songs. And one was called Studio 54. It was an unbelievable experience. It was so much fun to be around her. And the band was there. There was great. And the songs, never it came out because one of them became a Duran song. And then they got signed to a new record deal and they went in a different direction. One of our most popular podcasts is with country singer named Sarah Evans. And you worked with Sarah. Talk to us about that. That was with Peter Collins. And I never met her. And it was just doing like groove stuff, like percussion and like uh, programmed rhythm things. Mm -hmm. And so I would put, throw it on a day, ADAT and send it to him. I never really even heard what they did with it. But I guess Now that's it. interesting. When you get a project like that, are you hearing the singer sing the oh, song? Definitely. And then I add my, my stuff over it. Big personalities. How do you connect and how do you build trust? How do you bring the best out in an artist when they might not be willing to hear what your opinion is on something? Elton came to mind because, you know, he's such a living legend. And, and like, I want to talk about yeah. him, but go ahead. Let's talk about so Elton John. In, we were in Atlanta in the studio, and like the, I went in the night before to see, and there was all these people putting flowers and M&Ms and Diet Coke nope, and ice and No stuff. carnations. Yeah, Don't it, give yeah. him a carnation. Okay. So, yeah, I was getting super, super, super nervous. And this is a, the, something I've never told anybody. We had never mic'd a grand piano before. <laughs> So the first time we're going to mic up grand piano is going to be Elton John's. So I'm calling people in Nashville. And so we got it all set up. And then Elton came in and uh, the song was Perfect Day, which was a duet with Collective Soul. And uh, everybody said, oh, he's going to mess it all up. He's, like, he's, he's just, you know, it's going to be a nightmare. And the song was originally in C. It was Border Song. And he, we had to do it down a whole step to, I think, no, no, it was down a half step to B, which is a bad piano key. But he was incredible. And he nailed it like on the first take. But he came over to Cariotti and he goes, you can quantize that, right? <laughs> and Cariotti's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever you say, Sir but, Elton John. Yeah, but see, he was like singing so loud they could hear him down the street. I mean, it was unbelievable how, how loud his voice was. So we had the mic pre all the way down. And it's like still in the red. And we're like, the, the pad is on. It's like, you know, and it's still in the red. Like, what are we going to do? So we're like, uh, sir, dude, can you back off just a little bit? <laughs> sir, dude. Oh, my God. Elton John's Border Song. You yeah. scored that song also for the Atlanta Symphony. That was with Ricky Keller. And um, who else worked on that? A bunch of us. I was playing drums in an electrical closet, which is really a fun story because we were trying to get that 70s sound so i took the bottom heads off the um the drums you know and put like a bunch of stuff on them so they went boom, boom, you know that they sounded uh, that way that 70s vibe oh it was an incredible experience i mean it was really something and the the people in the in the orchestra didn't like me at all because i they don't like to um tune to 
instruments because they, it's like there's only one A440, right? So And their tuner tells them what that is. And if your guitars are a little bit sharp or flat, it's your tough luck. You know, we got into like arguments and stuff. It was, it was really difficult. So that's a good example of having a difficult situation that you have to somehow make peace with, right? I kept making them do it over because it wasn't in tune. And then the, 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 the first chair violinist was like, this guy's crazy. You know, he's like literally like this guy's crazy. You know, like, you know, and if if you go like one more minute over, like what the time is, it's like another like sixty thousand dollars or whatever it is. So I mean, I was sweating bullets. It was really a tough thing. The Twilight series of films, huge commercial success and a professional success for you. Tell me about your programming and your production work on that. Well, soundtrack. that was on a song called "Tremble for My Beloved." Has this big soundscape. It's a collective soul song that's on dosage. That ended up in the movie, and then one day I get this platinum plaque in the mail because. I guess it was a pivotal scene in the film. To this day, I've never seen the film. Welcome to the world of Anthony Resto, where one day he got a platinum black in the mail. Scream 2, Scream 3, Varsity Blues. How does it feel to sit in the theater, or have you not yeah. done this, and oh, hear your this. work? It's thrilling. I did a horror film last year with, called Warnings. It's on. You can get it on Amazon. They had the premiere here at the Man's Theater, the Chinese Theater. And I got to go there for that and it was packed and I was like sitting there and like watching people like scream and jump out of their chairs and stuff over, over the music. And I love doing that kind of music because Bernard Herrmann is like a hero of mine. I love the Alfred Hitchcock stuff. That's like where So I, the music was matching the emotion and the tenseness of the yeah. scene, right? For me, I don't think there's anything that's been as much of a, an emotional high as that. I, I, it's a whole different thing. It's like another career, you know? Well, speaking of that kind of emotion and excitement, you're driving along and you hear a song that you had some part of come out of the radio. What happens to you? What do you do? It depends. Like if, what this, the experience of making that song was and it comes back to flood you like a childhood memory. Yeah. And if it was a tedious, arduous process where you, you, know, you, you it was too slow and then it was too fast and then you, like, you, you did like 300 hours on it or whatever, you can be a little bit nauseous even. <laughs> Making the move to West Hollywood, yeah. huge, scary, another new chapter in your career. How are you feeling about the space that you're in? The minute I was in Laurel Canyon, I felt like finally like I was back home again because, you know, being a fisherman and from Canada, it's like you close the gate and it's all woods. You don't even realize you're in Los Angeles. And for me, it was like, finally, you know, it's like I just felt finally at peace because I was working at big studios like Paramount and they're wonderful places, Encore. But they're, you're surrounded by the city and hip-hop and big booming bass drums. And, and and this used to be a hunting lodge, and you took I, JC I just, and I for a little tour. Yeah, and we'll I, take a picture for everybody. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. It's, Laurel Canyon is just steeped with history. You know, the, the canyon store down the, the road here is where Jim Morrison wrote uh, Love Street, and he talks about the people in the store and everything. That's the story, and it looks like 1967. I'm going to take you there after we have the interview. And Joni Mitchell. Yeah, she's right around here. My friend uh, Rick Beto is somebody. Um, he's got a uh, Everything Music channel, and he's got 2 million subscribers. And I worked with him on the Need to Breathe record, uh, The Heat. And he came up and interviewed Joni at her house for three hours, and he didn't even come by and say hi. Rick, Speaking of Joni though. Mitchell, we spoke to Jim Messina, <laughs> okay. and Jim Messina was working as an engineer, recording engineer in a little studio when he first got started. And in walks this woman, and they just set up a microphone for her, and she had her guitar, and she starts playing, and they, he just pressed record, and he's just listening. And it was Joni Mitchell. And he said, from the moment her mouth opened, 
there was something so special about her that was unlike anyone else he'd ever heard. And this is circa, you know, this is before his Buffalo Springfield days, right? So my question for you is, it has to do with talent and star power. Do you know when you know? I honestly don't because there's so many factors that come into play. There's really no rhyme or reason to it. There's so many parameters or variables that, that, that make that happen. But you know when somebody just is, has a, a really deep God-given talent. And I have a, a new t-shirt that I'm going to be putting out called uh, You Can't Auto-Tune Charisma. Oh, we have to have one. Can we please have one, JC yes. and me? Yeah, I'll get you guys one. Catching magic in a bottle on the first take. Has it happened for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it happens. You know, and so, sometimes people will spend the next three hours trying to make it better because they, they if it's too easy, they don't want to believe it. They want to work harder for it, you know, but sometimes things just happen out of the gate and that's, that's it. Sometimes it's hard to be the producer. How do you pull it all together to get the best out of everybody in the room? There's a lot of different energies and you find yourself working differently with different people. Like some people might even need a little tiny bit of intimidation. So you kind of pick up on different personalities and different ways people like to work. Some people like a lot of space. You know, some people don't want you micromanaging their phrasing. There's ways to make an imperfect take a little less imperfect. But perfection is boring. And I think a lot of people are starting to realize that after 20 years of digital editing, making everything so perfect, there's something missing when everything is perfectly on a grid and in its spot and perfectly in tune. There's, you know, the records we grew up with were not like that. So I think there's starting to be a resurgence of people wanting to leave mistakes in music and let things like you listen to the Beatles, the guitars aren't perfectly in tune all the time. You know, I think there's a humanity missing in a lot of music today, but it's coming back. And I've, I've always been hopeful about that. This is such a huge body of work. What are you most proud of, Anthony? Oh my gosh. It's whatever I did today. No. <laughs> my favorite movie is Dead Poet Society. I wrote a song called Seize the Day. And in that four minutes is like everything I know about record production and everything I know about the guitar all in a four minute song. And I sang it and it's just, it just, it was just, it's like the best thing I've ever done for me. Cause it's, you know, it's an Ajax song. And then I had a celebrity here in LA, her name's Moss. She's a sort of like a fashion icon. She's millions of followers. And stuff. She sang it and we're going to release it with a video with her. So it'll get to a much bigger audience than because nobody cares about like some old dude in the, in the canyon. You know? <laughs> An old dude in the canyon. <laughs> Final question. Fill in the blank. The key to my success in music has been what? That's the hardest question anybody's ever asked me. Passion. Just a passion for what you do and being able to give it out to the world and bring it in from the world. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me in some of the most interesting questions anybody's ever asked me. Singer, songwriter, composer, musician, ringmaster of the music industry, (laughs) Anthony Ressa. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'm J.C. Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. Like I mentioned at the top of this interview, I met Anthony Resta when I was just starting out in my music career. So it was extra special getting to travel all the way over to the West Coast to ask him about the production behind an artist's recording. If you're on a musical career journey of your own, you've probably wondered about connecting with a producer like Anthony to take your music to the next level. I asked Anthony about this very thing, and here's what he had to say. 
When we first walked into this unbelievable room, you were talking about the history of so many of the artists that have worked here. You talked about Steven Tyler walking around the property. It's yeah. every artist's dream to be able to work in a studio like this. At what point in an artist's career are they ready to hire a producer like yourself? That's that's a really great question. And it's different now than it used to be because back in the day, like there was always this gateway, what do they call it? gatekeepers? You know, the, the point of entry was so expensive to do a proper recording. But now with the advent of all the technology being available to so many people, it's more about honing their craft and getting it ready for either a big studio or a little studio. Or the rules are different now. It's like, you know, look at Billie Eilish, for instance. Her and her brother recorded, of course, they had Rob Kaninsky mix it, and he's an incredible mix engineer. But they were able to take those recordings that they had done and turn it into like one of the biggest things that's hit the music business in decades. You do need somebody with experience to take it to that level. The software and all the tools that are available they don't come with the years of experience. And that's why people like me are still busy. It's a trade-off. And I learn from young people. They teach me stuff because they, they learn tricks that you, you would have never thought of. They're ready when they, they, they know that that last 10% that makes it go from, wow, that sounds really great, you know, like in your family members, and then to something that's like, oh my God, that oh my God factor, that last 10% is what people need pros like me for. You know? So I want to talk about the preparation that an artist needs to have before they come into a studio. They're, they have that desire to get that extra 10%. They end up working with someone like you when they come into a studio like this. What are some of the things they need to do to be prepared for that session to make the most out of it? Making sure that they're you know happy with the, the tempo is one of the things that's really crucial because one or two BPMs in a different direction can really change the, the feel of a song. And back in the day, we used to speed up the tape like by three percent or something just to give it that little push so i would say that and the arrangement but also just being really really um, proficient on their instruments so that they they don't have to spend eight hours like editing their guitar to get it in time you know because that's going to be costly the more accurately and more experience you have the a vibe that you can get out of your instrument without having to manufacture it the better anthony is correct You've got to find that 10% over-the-top ambition and be so prepared for your opportunity when it arrives. Someone once told me that all luck really is, is that special moment when preparation meets opportunity. And I know that to be very true. Keep working hard at your music. Get to the point where you can no longer take it to the next level on your own and seek out that perfect producing partner to help bring your musical vision to life. More wisdom you can use from J.C. Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. If you liked country music success stories, we hope that you'll spread the word about our podcast and please leave a review. Follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories and our website is the same title, countrymusicsuccessstories.com. Ooh, check out our TikTok handle, Candy and JC. Our series is now available on the Countryline app, so please download it. You know what I mean, just do all the things. <laughs> We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.